When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, Dagan. You coming back to the sack or what? Moriarty. (laughs) You threw me a curve with that one. I didn't see that one coming. Here's why I'm not going to start with... One, two, Dagan's coming for you because yeah. then you're going to make some off-colored coming for you joke. Yeah. And I just oh. don't need it. Oh. Well, it's funny, you say, it it's, it's funny you say that actually because Luke Tucker wrote into us on Patreon and says, one, two, Dagan's coming for you. <laughs> Three, four, late fees at the store. Five, six, buried out in the sticks. Seven, eight, got to dig it up late. What? Nine, ten, never watching the VHS again. Thank you. How did he try? If that would that would have been extra per first of all, that was great. I give you a hundred percent. Hundred ten percent Luke if that was actually a nightmare. Check plus. Yeah. On Elm Street rather than Bram Stoker's Copeland. Dracula. Yeah, he put it all together there. Very nice. It, it's still within the horror genre, so right. Brownie points. Yeah, he 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 wanted to call make that call back. We won't get quite into the topic just yet. That's that's not that's not how we do things here. <laughs> that's not Welcome how to we do. Welcome to Knockback, our retro and nostalgia podcast. We put it up each and every week. You can get it early and ad free over on Patreon, patreon.com slash laststandmedia. Many thousands of you support us over there, and we appreciate that very much. Uh, of course, supporting us there also gets you perks for Sacred Symbols, the PlayStation podcast, the world's most beloved PlayStation podcast, and Defining Duke, an Xbox podcast as well. And uh, submit your questions, get your name in the credits, Sacred Symbols Plus, Defining Duke Ultimate. There's a whole lot out there, laststandmedia.shop for merch. We are going to be working on our Moriarty Raygun 2024 shirt soon. So we'll get that out to you oh, shortly. That's, that's awesome. And uh, once, yeah, I don't even know when this is going live, but oh, no, I guess it will. I, I'm, we're doing our live show, show very soon. So we'll God. see you out there. And that will, of course, be live for for everyone uh, on Patreon soon after it happens. You have something to say, Dave? Yeah, I want to see at the live show. I'm very excited. This is yeah. new to me. You know, I want to. Here's what I want to see. And I hope I'm not asking for too much. I want to see a representative from each of the 50 states it's <laughs> and canada and mexico like if there's somebody not from alaska and hawaii there i'm not saying continental i'm saying 50 so not the contiguous but the yeah all the... i i expect all 48 but then outside also and maybe canada and um i don't i don't know maybe even some other countries i i want to see a i want to see an international contingent representative at this thing and it's I like the united nations basically okay well, if you can't get into the show, I still want to see you in Butler, PA. Yeah, well, we'll see you the next day because we're doing a a, a, a a kind of a gathering, some food trucks and everything uh, in a park the next day after exactly. the show. So and that's not that's for everybody. So you can come. And you said if people come from out of town, they could stay in your hotel room. Mike. That's right. Well, I'm actually staying with Dustin. So uh, I think <laughs> it's so I think that they can uh, they can all stay at Dustin's. 
cool. I'm staying. I took, at I'm staying. I'm, I'm staying. Yeah, I, I think you are staying at the hotel. The reason I took my myself out of the hotel was just like just remove me because, you know, we need a room and just take me off the board, you know, so right. that we can focus on getting everyone set up. So yeah, we're looking forward to that. Looking forward to what we can learn. I think we've learned much of what we need to learn already, actually. But yeah, that's basically. It's gonna that. be so, so nice to see. That's the thing, right? They get to see us all the time, listen to mm. us, but we never get to. See, it's never the other way around. Now the mirror is reversed. We get to see you guys and girls, and hear you, and stay in the hotel room that's now vacant because Colin's not staying in the hotel. Yeah. So right? don't worry about me over there. I'm, I'm disappearing. <laughs> but yeah, we're looking forward to it, and we're gonna have a lot of fun. It's and obviously, fun. we know. I mean, it's sold out almost immediately, so we know that many, many, many people that wanted to go couldn't. And uh, again, this is just just a test run. I think we'll do more of these beginning in 2022, but we'll see. And uh, yeah, otherwise, just just hanging out, doing uh, doing work and preparing for the live show. And well, anything interesting going on in your your neck of the woods? I don't know why I was just thinking about this before the show. I think because I went into the garage and I heard a truck outside. What's your stance on? Have we talked about this before? What's your stance on delivery guys? I'm talking UPS, FedEx, US Mail, whatever, whoever. Yeah, yeah. Pulling in the driveway for mm. a delivery. Amazon, of course, is a biggie. What's your stance on that? Should they just pull roadside near the house, on the side of the house, in front of the house, or whatever? Or are they do they have your leave to use the driveway? Yeah, I don't. I don't. I do notice that I have like a, an array of cameras outside my house. So like when yeah. someone comes and drops something off, I can see. And sometimes people pull up front and sometimes people pull in the driveway. I feel like it's a little too familiar yeah, to pull in the driveway. driveway thing. But I also think it's it depends. Like uh, like the, for some reason, I don't mind so much a pizza guy delivering it if he's like pulling in. But I don't the FedEx guy I just feel like you got to stay on this. Your house is kind of weird, though, because. You live in such like it's hard to know how to get to your door. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Because That's you true. live in this parcel where maybe they're trying to use the driveway to find because otherwise you have to like walk right across your lawn and maybe they yes, feel there's guilty no about doing that. Right. Yeah, that's true. I guess I mm. could kind of leave a little bit of wiggle room for that. But yeah. yeah, it really bothers me when they pull in the driveway. I don't like it. <laughs> so I could get a little too bent, maybe a little too bent out of shape. Yeah, you're not you're not feeling it. that. But yeah, I was just wondering what your take was now. Another homeowner thing, another homeowner take. I could talk to you about this stuff now. Yeah, I, you certainly can. I mean, we're just we're doing our thing, by the way. So we're getting like a bunch of our landscaping redone. So because the pool company is like completely destroyed my yard. So which, which was which was to be expected. Also, the pool's like not even remotely done still. Oh, but, my um, God. These, these guys. guys are the these guys are the fucking worst. Holy like shit. They're nice enough, but I just think they're so ahead of their skis. And I'm just like I, about a month ago, I was just like, you know what? I'm letting this go. Like you're just going to it's just going to ha- yeah, it's just going to happen. Like, I can't worry about this every day. It's almost comical. It's the right and, attitude. It'll get done. Like they just slowly get things done. I'm like, it'll be fine. I'm sure at the end, like I just can't, because my neighbor would be like, I'd be all over these guys and stuff, and I'd be like, I don't know, man. Oh, it's just no, he's way. fueling it, the flames. Yeah, yeah. And he's I'm like, I'm not. Flame. You can't do that. I'm like, I'm not really that kind of person. I'm really just not. Like I'm very, not very assertive, you know. And well, no, not even that. Just letting it roll off your shoulders, I think, is the right attitude. Why stress out about something? That's There's nothing I can do about it. Like they're not going to do it any quicker. It's mostly done. I'm just waiting for the liner so that we can fill it with water. You know? Okay. Okay. And uh, and then they have to do all the landscaping in the back, like the concrete work and stuff like that. But I'm like, I don't know, man. I, I, just months ago, I realized like you guys are just full of shit and uh, we're already too deep into this. And then I don't know why and, I picture your pool, pool guys like Flintstones 
contractors. Like they have animals where like yeah. machinery should be. <laughs> like the elephants fill in the pool with the concrete. Right, right. So with the- I don't know why I think that. Just because it's like, I think because the progress has been molasses-like. Let's yeah, I mean, I mean, molasses moves quicker than this. So I'm, after we're done with the show, I'll probably call them and just um, and just see what's going on because uh, it's so weird though, right? Like I've been in this situation now with the pool, but with other stuff. Yeah, where you do just feel powerless after a fashion. You're just like, all right, you just kind of got to throw your hands up and just acquiesce. It's like, all right, like I guess it's your call. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right, like you what, throw what are you all the power to- over to them? Yeah, I, I feel like in, in some sense, like, I think it's part of who I am. Like, I'm just not a very assertive, in-your-face person. And I'm also afraid of, like, annoying the people when the job still needs to be done. And I just, I, I've also talked to some other people where they're like, yeah, pool building a pool is a disaster. Like, I, I was I was talking to some some dude, like, dropped off a bunch of sand because they're making, like, some sort of compound for the concrete and... And he was, I'm like, yeah, sorry, man, just drop it. And like, he was like, where do you want me to put it? I'm like, literally drop it anywhere because the pool people have just destroyed my yard. And he's like, yeah, pool people do that. You know, I'm <laughs> like, knew. all right. So I guess, yeah. So I guess this guy knew. And then Aunt Carla, I think, was the one saying to me, she's like, uh, the, the, the old saying about pools is if you want a pool, you really need to want a pool. You know? Yeah. And it's going to test your, your metal as far as right. like, do you really want? It? I saw my so neighbors really, go through so it. So like. When I got through, when I got, when I dissuaded myself that I'm ever going to get into this thing this year, that's when I was just like, you know, whatever, because it'll just be ready next year. It'll be, and then I'll just forget that this ever even happened. So well, I just need to, go. I just need to get to that point. I just have too many other, th- other yeah, things to go on in my going life on. right now. Yeah. yeah. Over the long haul. That's the right philosophy. I think that's the right take. Right. Huh? And you know, what? are you also afraid you were saying a little bit, I think you were intimating this, like you're afraid being a ball buster might affect the quality of the work not even the quality so much as like their willingness to do it (laughs) (laughs) because i did get into like one pretty aggressive fight with the like not fight but argument with the dude very uncharacteristic for me okay and this was months ago though you know yeah now i understand that there's a lot of things out of their hands like apparently there's a really bad vinyl issue going on uh, with like vinyl production which is part of our problem and so I know that some of it's out of your hands, but at the same time, it's like you got to like be more organized and, and stop blaming COVID for everything. It's, it's, you know, it's not over, but it's come on, you know, it's over. Yes. Like you should have adapted by now. Exactly. Possibly. So it is what it is. I mean, I'm, well, I'm, I'm very lucky to be posted. On I'm that. very lucky to be in a position where I can do this at all. But I, uh, yeah, I just yeah. I wanted the pool so badly. And then when I let go of the just like I'll be like, I'll just have it next year. I mean, I've waited so long anyway. And then it's like, yeah, OK. Other things to do. The year's almost over. What are you going to do? I hear you, my friend. I hear you. All right. Dig. The topic at hand, as everyone already knows, because they clicked on this, is A Nightmare on Elm Street, the 1984 horror film from Wes Craven, written and directed by Wes Craven. Uh, this movie was made for just a hair over a million dollars, made 50 times that at the box office. Now, I'm curious about your memories of this. This actually came out after I was born, but I was only about a month old when this game or when this movie came out. So I, um, Obviously didn't see it. And I don't remember when the first time I saw it was, but I saw this movie in dribs and drabs many, many, many times. And then as I got older, you know, I finally sat down and watched it all. I thought I wanted to bring up this topic for multiple reasons. First of all, we're, we're getting towards October from when we're recording this. So maybe start doing some horror stuff. But also, I, I wanted to watch this movie again because I had this kind of strange feeling where I'm like, I don't think this movie's very good. And I went back and watched it and I'm like, this movie's really not very good. And 
it's not that it's bad. It's that it doesn't do anything right, really, with like this really amazing <laughs> idea, right? It's this really cool idea. And awesome none idea. of it and none of it is really very well done. I mean, that's my opinion. I, I just don't think it is. And I'm a little surprised how big this movie was when you really look back at it. You know, like it's it's kind of shocking. Now, I know, you know, Wes Craven was a known entity at this point. He did The Hills Have Eyes and stuff like that. But sure. This was really his first big one, and he later did Scream and all yeah. that, which I actually think is a better movie than Nightmare on Elm Street for sure. And so, yeah, I think that there's a ton to talk about here because we got a lot of interesting inquiries from the audience about this. This does seem to be a really beloved movie. It obviously clearly is. It doesn't not seem to be. Freddy is an iconic character, which, icon. again, I find questionable. And so... Yeah, I don't know. I have a lot to say. I, I, I feel more negative about the film than I thought I was going to going into it. I have no problem that I watched it, but I think some of my critiques will make a lot of sense when I get into them. Let me throw it over to you, though, and, and see how you feel about A Nightmare on Elm Street. Well, this was a fun one that you called this one. And early on, I have to be honest with you, I wasn't sure if I saw this movie. Now, of course, this would be the film that went on to spawn an iconic franchise, an iconic character. Everybody knows the lore. Everybody knows the series. But I wasn't sure if I saw this first movie. And you know what? I never did. I sat down to watch it, and I was like, I have never seen this first film. Uh, so my, I remember going to see Dream Warriors, which was Nightmare 3, in the theater that was 87 or 88. I forget. I think it was 87. And that's where actually my experience with Nightmare, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street probably started. Probably saw it number two as well. I think that was Revenge, uh, Freddy's Revenge or Revenge, Revenge of Freddy or whatever. But I had never seen this first film. I had only, and it's it's so weird to, you know, you were saying now, going back as we often do on the show, giving this film and this series like the litmus test in, you know, going back and looking at this, this thing uh, relevant to today and how does it hold up. So it was fun for me to actually go in and watch something that I hadn't yet seen. I completely missed this first film. And that goes to show you, too, when something becomes, you know, an iconic franchise, you kind of lose track. Especially I was 10 going on 11 when this came out. I would be 11 that year. And, of course, you hadn't seen it, as you mentioned, in the theater. And I think it came out on cable and VHS the very next year in 80. So by 85, it was already on available for everybody to see at home. But and I'm sure HBO and, and Showtime are running it like crazy. But it was fun to actually do a topic where I haven't seen the actual film before. And it does leave, I agree with you, it's a, it's a suspect one in as far as it, how well it holds up. And also to talk about an icon, you know, an iconographic film director in Wes Craven and an iconic character in Freddy Krueger. Of course, the 80s horror, you have that classic triumvirate, right? You have Jason Voorhees, Friday the 13th. You have Michael Myers of Halloween. And you have Freddy of Nightmare. So... It's a great part of the 1980s horror conversation, and I think there is a lot to say about this film, about this period of time, about this particular character. How well does he hold up when you hold him against the other classic, iconic 80s horror villains, even a guy like Leatherface? Like, how does, how does Freddy fit into all that? And um, yeah, Wes Craven's an interesting guy, too, to talk about, like... You know, of course, I always delve into the directors when I'm researching, and I found out so many interesting things about this guy. You know, coming off of The Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left, which I really want to see, because that was a very controversial film that I also missed. 
and I think Swamp Thing before this, but this is really the series that put him on the map. Very inventive idea. And as you said, Kyle, Scream, later on Scream, another thing kind of anchored or sort of hanging on a very classic, very iconographic, um, memorable concept. Very much like, like Nightmare. But yeah, man, this is a great... And going into Halloween, going into the fall kind of feels right. And uh, I really enjoyed, like, I really enjoy the, we talk about this so much in our conversations with classic films, 30, going back 30, 25, 30 years, is that, you know, this is a film hung on practical effects, in camera, maybe a little green screen, and stunts, and just being inventive for showing the imagery that you want to show on the film. So that was a fun part of the conversation for me too. So we could start this and and the acting, you know, we got to talk about the actors too. Definitely. So that, you know, there's so many different ways we could take this and I'm looking forward to the talk. Including a young Johnny Depp. Oh, I'm sure we have a lot to say, but yeah, Michael Maniage wrote into us on Patreon and remember you can support us on Patreon to also get your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas onto the show. He says, hello, Dagan's dream warriors. Did you know that the premise (laughs) of the film is derived from a true story? Wes Craven read an article about a 1970s Cambodian refugee family that escaped Pol Pot's killing fields. Despite being safe, their son kept dreaming that someone was trying to kill him. He was afraid to fall asleep. After the boy finally succumbed to the slumber, the family awoke to his screams only to find him dead. Where do you stand on the idea that dreams have greater power than we know? Have you experienced dreams eerily coming true in your own lives? I did want to start here because it is interesting. I think the reason that I went to this movie subconsciously was because I've been... For some years now, really into reading and researching sleep. And I think I might have talked about this before. Sleep is I listen to a lot of like what you would might call like academic or intellectual podcasts. As I think people know that's pretty much the only podcast I listen to. And I, I just play video games and just listen to these like lectures and debates and whatever the case might be. And uh, sleep, I, I search out a lot of stuff on sleep because and I don't know if people know this, but sleep is a great mystery. And when I was. I was remarking to Micah when we were watching A Nightmare on Elm Street because there is a shot where she's, you know, the main character's in a sleep clinic. And the way they're describing sleep, I'm like, it's actually nothing's really changed. They're, they're talking about the different waves and how you, you know, beta waves and, and going into REM and all, all of these different things. And I'm like, we still understand that, but we don't really know why we sleep, what happens and what dreams are. And there's a lot, there are a lot of theories, but... There are really no answers. And anyone who re- like listens to a lot of this stuff knows that there are just a lot of ideas. But the startling thing about dreams and sleeping is that everything sleeps and everything that at least has some sort of consciousness seems to dream. And so it seems to have some sort of really primordial basic function, very like from the common ancestor, right? Like going that far back, perhaps. And... I'm totally fascinated by it. So I think that it makes a lot of sense that I came to Nightmare on Elm Street subconsciously because I'm always thinking about that stuff. And I even recently started a dream book, which I've I've barely gotten to write. And I've only written three entries so far over about a month because I leave it up just a book next to my bed and I'm trying to record dreams that I remember. But I really only remember because when you're in like deep sleep and like, yeah, typically towards when you're waking up is when you're like towards the end of the night is when you're starting to really dream. And so I'm trying to remember those but it's hard to do just to kind of see what it because i have definitely trends in my own dreams and stuff like that as well that's fascinating uh, that's like awesome lots of repeatable that. trends and and things like that and um 
It's interesting. You know, the, the whole idea about how like it seems like your mind needs to do this. It might be working problems out that like you forget about them because you need to untether them from reality so sure. that you don't get confused. Like there's all sure. these like because, you know, the, the more you think about a dream, the more you forget it. It seems like there's some sort of biological thing there where it's like you aren't supposed to remember this, like just to let it go. It's we're trying to make sense of data and put, you know, it's like when you put a when you're fighting a tough boss, it just happened to me the other day. I was fighting a tough boss in a game I was playing, went to bed, woke up, destroyed it right the next day. It right. happens over. I do it all the time. I do that constantly. It's so predictable that I do it. I don't even get annoyed at games anymore. I'm like, I'll just come back to this tomorrow. And then I do. And then it's just for some reason, my mind has worked it out. Yeah. So right. no, absolutely. What is, you know, to Michael's question here. First of all, did you know that it was inspired by a real story? And also, do you think that dreams have a greater power? Are you interested in sleep and and all of that stuff and what it means? Because I, I don't know. I just find it a very interesting pursuit because there is so much mystery. It's like what we say about deep space or or the, the depths of the ocean. Like we just don't know anything. And I find that personally quite appealing. Absolutely. It's fascinating. And what a great concept to hang a story on for a film. I mean, Definitely. You, you're, you're already in. You know, which is why it's so annoying that this movie's not very good. But yeah, I'll, I'll, absolutely. I, they kind of squandered the opportunity, you know. Definitely. Yeah, so much that we don't know about this particular area of humanity. So much as of yet still unanswered questions and undecipherable, you know, everything about it, you know, despite tons and probably billions of dollars worth of research and so many unanswered questions still. It's, it's absolutely unbelievable. The true story that it's based on is fascinating. This immigrant family. And this young boy that's afflicted with these nightmares that he was sort of apparently, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the dad of this Cambodian family was actually a doctor. And sort of that pessimism or, or not believing him, which is, I think, part of the horror of this whole idea of this young people and the, the adults are just not, you know, the adults, there's some PTSD and some responsibility going on that the, the adults are actually culpable but also just kind of trying to poo-poo it. It's part of the horror, I think, for kids and part of what made it scary as a young person. But with this true story, it was actually really fascinating if you delve into it because they had him on sleeping pills, which he never took. He would hide them. The kid actually had, and you see this in the film with the, uh, you know, later on in I think the second half of the film, the kid actually had a Mr. Coffee Pot hidden in his closet. Like the kid was desperate he was horrified and terrified of what was happening and when he fell asleep and he was desperate to stay awake and when he passed you know again this was a child this was a young guy with no apparent health concerns or anything like that something happened to him where he was apparently you know died in his sleep was he murdered in his sleep what happened what was he afraid of there's so many unanswered questions there but such a terrifying situation to find all these undigested you know, hidden sleeping pills in his closet and the Mr. Coffee machine and what happened. And then apparently that was sort of a domino effect of three or four more instances of that happening in that same, I guess, region within a year, which was really another strange kind of follow up to that story. And then also Wes Craven tells a story about what inspired him too. like he was a young guy growing up in Ohio, very traditional, strict, super strict uh, Baptist family that he came from. He tells a story that he hadn't seen a film. He didn't see his first movie until he was a senior in college. That's how sort of overprotective and everything this family was, except for That's Disney wild. films, he says, which is oh, crazy, okay. right? So you all that stuff, all that pent up sort of horror and violence and all that stuff, you could see why Wes Craven kind of became who he was, right? It was a catharsis. 
Imagine being such an auteur, too, that you can just make films having no basis for. Yeah. <laughs> or having to catch up in that short yeah. amount of time. It just you know? doesn't seem like something that people usually do. It's like your formidable years usually just create what you do. So imagine right. you being an artist where you hadn't even seen That's a great anything point. until you were 22. Yeah, there was no real journey. Like right. the journey kind of started in horror. And I know he, he sort of tried to escape from horror, but I think he was a natural for horror because of his, his background. Yeah, and he talks about a story when he was a kid. He heard this muttering in the street one random night. He got out of bed and he looked out you know, under the streetlight. And there was a guy with like the Freddy Kruegerish hat and a trench coat just standing in the street. And he said, when he came to the window as this little guy, he, the guy looked up at him. Like he sensed that he was being watched and he had such a malevolent face. The guy was like, he looked like he could do harm, you know? Mm. And he made this like, you know, boo type of expression before walking away, like to scare the West as a, as this young kid. And that stayed with him. And I love hearing stories like that because if you, you know, you could see some of that in the movie, you could see some of that in what they imparted with Freddy. But I think it is, I think Nightmare on Elm Street really horrified me as a kid, even though I started it probably as an early teen. Now I was already, if you guys are avid followers of the, of knockback, you already know that I was terrifying myself with things. Poltergeist was one that I scared myself with. And then a little bit later, Aliens was another one that I really wasn't ready for. I really didn't have the I really didn't have the personality to wade through those type of things as a young kid. I was way too sensitive, but I would torture myself with them. This wasn't one of them, but the idea scared me even in my mid-teens where and it's so clever, right? Every neighborhood has an Elm Street. So sort of saying like this could apply to anybody. And also not just a killer who is intentionally harming children, which is horrifying in itself, but also taking advantage of you and pursuing you when you're at your most vulnerable and sort of taking advantage of preying on somebody when they have to do a normal human function, like go to sleep. And it's not like, it's, it's weird. It's not like a thing where you could just like in horror, you could kind of circle it like, okay, I'll avoid the haunted house or I'll go out with a gun or I'll get the police for help. This is like, you know, when you're asleep, it's just you and there's no defending yourself. There's no, there's nobody else that could help you. You're at really your most vulnerable. So that whole idea was really scary. And I think that helps the film because I'm not sure on his own how scary Freddy is, at least in this film. I remember him going on to being a little more frightening of a character as they evolve him through the franchise. But for this film... He's almost like a satanic Bugs Bunny or something. Yeah, like, he's very weird. Goofy and cartoony compared <laughs> to the other. And, you know, he's slight of build. He doesn't have that imposing figure of like a Jason Voorhees or a Michael Myers or a Leatherface. You know, those are big hulking monster-like characters that are much more threatening physically. You know, so he's this guy, this little guy's like, he, he's actually tiny. I mean, Robert Englund is a small dude. And they don't play that down in the film, like even against these teenage girls, like he's wrestling around with them. Maybe he's got the upper hand. Maybe they do. Like, <laughs> I'm not sure how threatening that is. And it, it makes right. for a fascinating conversation of how scary it still is, because most things I'm such a wimp and a coward and so sensitive that most things that scared me when I was a kid still have the same degree of scaring power on me, on my psyche. They stay with me. 
But Nightmare, Freddy doesn't have that for me. He became much less threatening now as an adult. And this movie just brings that to the forefront. You know? Definitely, definitely. I love what you brought up about the um, the Elm Street thing, too, because I was thinking about specifically the first season Twilight Zone episode. The monsters are due on Maple Street, where it had a, a which is an awesome, iconic episode where the, the aliens basically get the humans to turn on each other um, and just kill themselves so that they don't have to do anything. And by like shutting off their engines and fucking with their technology, it's a really amazing. So good story. It's also like 60 years old, which makes it even more amazing. But. It reminded me of that, where I feel like that was a similar thing where it's like, oh, Maple Street. We all have a Maple Street. And actually, we got a, a letter about this because I thought that this was fairly interesting. Lou and Ray Loper wrote into us and said, this one stuck with us as children, as adults. My sister actually bought a house on Elm Street, and it even has a furnace downstairs. She has yet to be taken in a nightmare, but I did have one of those horrid sweaters as a child, so I'm sure this all can't be a coincidence. <laughs> I I do love the idea of of like... I would like to go look. I didn't look. You would have to kind of go into Lexus Nexus and do a little bit of research, but it would be interesting. Did this movie have any ill effect on real estate on Elm Streets? This movie was such a phenomenon that it would be interesting to know. Like, did did someone be like, oh, this is my dream house, but it's, you know, 17 Elm Street. Bye. Like that kind of thing, because uh, you, you want like I wonder that that's when I hear Elm Street. I mean, that's all I'm ever going to think about is this movie. Everyone. Pre-1984, that wasn't even a thing, which also makes me wonder, like, do people still name streets Elm Street? That's a great that's a, question. That's, that's another thing, right? That right. is a fantastic way. I, I could tell you this. When I was a kid, I was really happy that grandma lived on Willow and not Elm. Yeah, Because sure. there was an Elm in that neighborhood. There was. You know, I was so relieved about that. Yeah, you're <laughs> not going to have any, no on nightmares on Willow. But <laughs> Willow's a, a lovely tree as well. But I feel like you're right about Freddy. And this is where I didn't. This is where the movie kind of fell apart for me because I'm like, this isn't scary at all. Like, I think of Jason. Well, I I think Jason and Friday. The, first of all, Friday the 13th is another one of those. I love that movie. And it's an, one of those movies that I just keep putting off because I'm like, well, I'll never do Friday the 13th because that's an, an awesome story. That story has everything that's necessary, I think, for really compelling horror for the most part, which is like, you know, teens. Yeah. Picked on child. Death. Fucked up mom. Camp the woods, like the, the hockey mask, Absolutely. the imposing figure like Jason's awesome. I've always been a huge fan of Jason. Like I've always loved Jason. And Michael Myers is really similar. Someone had actually written in about Michael Myers. I don't think we used it, but them saying like he's just a man who's not going to stop coming after you. That, that, that killing very famous. Like, yeah, exactly. It's like Freddy's like nowhere in this conversation for me. And it's interesting because. I, I again, I want to go back because I don't want to be negative. First of all, I don't think it's a bad movie at all. But what frustrates me about it is that, uh, you know, watching it, all I could think about was, wow, this could be so much better. How did they not see sure. how many ways this movie could have been better? And that was what was frustrating to me. The movie moves way too fast and probably is one of those movies that needs to be longer. They don't establish reality at all. I think that that might be part of it. Because you don't really know what's real and what's not, including towards the end. And we'll obviously talk about that in a little That's while. That's true. Yeah. So I don't know if that ethereal kind of thing is is intentional or not. But I'm like, wait a minute. Who are these people? What is their real life like? What is the relationship like? Why are we spending just one 10 second scene on the, the white, you know, the mom and her boyfriend? Why are we only spending a little bit with the four kids walking into school? Like, let's establish reality yeah and also get a little bit more into 
what the parents did. Yes. And that's definitely that should be like half of the movie is the parents really like looking at each other in every scene being like, oh, fuck, you know, and everyone kind of being in on it. That's what frustrated me was I was like, it should have a larger cast. And uh, I mean, these these movies require ensembles, in my opinion, and in in most ways. I mean, think about the camp counselors, right, in Friday the 13th and all that. Like you need some bigger array of players. And then it's like, okay, these kids all live on this street. There was this court case and this 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 murderer and, and child molester got away and the parents did something about it. So like really play that up, like make the glances more knowing and Absolutely. drag out the psychology of it a little bit more and maybe make it so that the parents are guilty. Explain the alcoholism a little bit more, explain the, the divorce maybe a little bit more or the, the cop kind of knowing, but being flipping and tell, you know, so I was just kind of frustrated because I hadn't seen the movie in a long time and I never really looked at it through critical eye. And there's a lot of really cool scenes in it, especially like the death scenes, I think are amazing, but they're great. But I feel like I'm like, well, why did you do it this way? You almost did it in maybe the worst way. And that's what frustrated me the most. And I, I don't remember too much about the second and third ones. I've seen them, but I don't know if they get more into into that, but they should have. It's it's what makes it's what makes it interesting. Like imagine watching The Shining and having like nothing in the in the second half of the film at all to explain like any of the madness. It just kind of oh, it's just everyone kind of knows the madness is. Right. So what do you what do you think about my critique, my general critique? Oh, I think that's I think you're absolutely on point with that. I think there for as fun and entertaining as a movie this is and looking back in it and how 80s it is. It's a, it's a lot of fun to watch and it's a quick watch. But there are a lot of missed opportunities. Some of it feels kind of disjointed, like it's kind of an assemblage of disparate parts. But I think the engine of what makes the story so cool is that there is a dark cloud hanging over this town. You know, there's some sort of trauma, some sort of past PTSD that this whole generation, the parents of the teenagers, are kind of trying to suppress and trying to bury the reality that when this killer, when this child killer or pedophile, as it was in the script, which they, which they try to sort of walk back, I think, in the film, but they might bring that back to light in the subsequent sequels. And, and what's interesting, by the way, is Amazon Prime describes him as a pedophile. In yeah, the because and I think, you know, I think in 84 they tried to walk that back. But as soon as the censors started to relinquish power and, and, and the film studios got a little more wiggle room, that new line... And Wes Craven and the powers that be were able to kind of inject that into the story a little more. And you see it with Freddy. I mean, look at the bathtub scene, right? I mean, he's going after teenage girls. Right. You know, so. But I think that that really was a missed opportunity. You should really see the parents trying. There's some sort of accord in the town where the parents are in on something that the kids don't know about. But it's that, you know, that darkness, that past, that dark past that they're trying to bury is affecting their children. Right. And I thought you would see that, like, for instance, with Johnny Depp's parents in the film, where they have this sort of, um, they have this sort of nonverbal agreement where it's like a, a nod and a wink, like, all right, like, this is coming to light because of the sins of our past. But you will really only see that 
with the main character's parents, and I would say even more so just with the mom character. She's really the only one that seems haunted by it. You know, she's got Freddy's claw wrapped up in the furnace and everything like that. So that's really kind of an interesting missed opportunity for the film that I think they could have really, you know, that's part of the lore too. That's another thing that's interesting about this is that A Nightmare on Elm Street as a franchise is so well known. It's so it's such a huge part of pop culture now that we already know the story behind Freddy, that he was a child molester, that he was a child murderer, and the parents, he got off on some sort of legal technicality, and the parents in this place exacted revenge and murdered him, and then he's coming back in some supernatural way to exact vengeance on these families, Right. And I think going into this blind, like let's say you didn't, you were living under a rock somewhere and you didn't know the story, the overarching story of A Nightmare on Elm Street. You could go into this story. It'd actually be pretty good first half because you don't really know. And as those those secrets and the the origins and the reasons why these things are happening or revealing themselves, I think it could be pretty cool. But as our generations, we're kind of deprived of that. Like even mm-hmm. going into this film now, I knew that or I already knew the lore of Freddy for years. I've never even seen this film, for instance. That's a great case in point. So, and I think it's also fair to say, Kyle, that this movie starts out, I think, on the right footing. It could be pretty scary. It, it sort of meanders into ridiculousness and absurdity territory. And then I think for the ending, the last couple of minutes, it kind of meanders back into like scary territory again which is an interesting journey to take over the course of the film. definitely but yeah definitely. i mean starting there i think this movie already has an advantage for freddie because the idea and i know how haunted i was as a kid of this idea of like falling asleep at night you're fucked there's no parents to help you there's no cops there's no weapons you're in this dream place where this person you know this mysterical mysterious entity this mystical being malevolent being has power over it and you're fucked when you go to sleep and i remember feeling that as a kid like being i don't think it ever did keep me up through the night but i remember falling asleep on plenty of nights being like oh shit freddy you know what i mean even last night going to sleep i was like oh man dreams are fucked like who knows what's going to happen tonight you know and then you just right. fall asleep and this this goes into i think for me the the major frustration i have with the film which is just it's awesome. It's an awesome idea like how do you i don't want to say bungled it i don't think that's true this movie is beloved i like I have to accept that I am in the minority. I mean, even at the time, this movie was beloved. It wasn't like just something that people wanted to go see. It was people were going to see it because it had great word of mouth and obviously got higher budget sequels that were also beloved and all the rest. So at least two that were beloved. So I just don't know how you come up with this idea and don't know how to better execute on it. And who am I to, who am I to say, like, I'm not Wes Craven, but and I have the also the ability of hindsight and most of the horror genre has come out since this movie has been made. So you have to kind of look at it through those lenses as well. Like they were all kind of pioneering things, but there was some true real horror going on at this time from alien to the thing. And this movie is not even remotely in that conversation for me, not to mention Halloween in the late seventies, Texas chainsaw massacre, which is a fucking awesome film and all, and all of the rest, the original, the remakes fine too, but I just, I get frustrated because I can just see in my mind the way this could have gone. And it's funny because you almost see the lack of establishment is played out again in in Scream because Scream famously opens up with the Drew Barrymore scene, right? Did we ever do Scream? We no, did Scream, didn't no, we? we haven't done oh, it. Oh, no. We, but like, you know, it starts out with Drew Barrymore, like a 15 minute scene with just Drew Barrymore, right? And 
classic. And the murder. It's a classic intro. Classic. But what's awesome about it is that then they get out of that and establish what's going on. The reason yeah. that Scream and later I always know I, or I knew you did last summer and all of that, which is, I think, another good late 90s horror flick. They have something in that they establish the characters more and by playing up the sex or by playing up the drugs or by playing up whatever these debauched kids do in the, a lot of these various movies, it makes it more interesting and exciting. And I guess I just didn't really have I didn't have a, I, I guess what frustrates me is I, I never had a grasp of what Nancy's real world was like. So how do there's just nothing about that. They walk into school. The problems are already kind of starting to happen. They're already sharing their talks about their nightmares. Like, why are we starting from there? Why don't we start where they have a normal day? They all go home. Maybe they're they're doing all their different things. Then they all go to bed at night and all have these nightmares. Then they yes. get back together the next day and talk about it. Maybe some of them are skeptical. Some of them aren't. Some of them are more, more scared than not. And then maybe one of them describes the nightmare, why they're so worried to one of their parents. The parents are like, who like asks you know asks them to describe the character and they realize it's Freddy Krueger so maybe there's this other arc that the kid that's happening beyond the kids where the parents are now talking to each other and being like something's up like remember what we did in 1976 or whatever and got away with like there's just that's what's frustrating like why why didn't you do it like that yeah <laughs> you know and I guess, I guess who am I to say but and it, they don't do Freddy any favors by not establishing it more I think he's a really, truly goofy character. In fact, there's that that one scene where I'm like, I don't know if this is supposed to. Is this supposed to be funny? Which one? Where it's like one of the first times you see him with the long arms, yeah, where he's like, which, arms. Which yeah, Which is cool. I like that. But then he runs like, you know, like at her. And I'm like, is this supposed to be funny? This isn't. <laughs> it's such a cool idea. A guy with like the just one like one glove on not two with the knives on the hands he made this thing himself it's it's fucking awesome like why it's not a butcher knife it's a right you know it's something different something unique it's you know it's dope i guess something he made for himself and so i don't know i think that that's kind of what frustrates me because yeah the idea of like don't fall asleep don't you know don't and actually on the other end nancy's bravery and being like i'm bringing this motherfucker out of the dream it's a very cool idea. She's a great character. Like, like, wake me up and I will bring him out of the dream. Like, everything, the whole premise, I can imagine the elevator pitch being like, oh, yeah. Yeah, sounds amazing on paper. Absolutely. And, and, I, and I think that they were still happy with it, obviously. I mean, but I don't know. I just think this movie could have been so much more. This could be like a Rosemary's Baby shining. Sure. The thing, like, type pantheon film. And I know that people think about it from its cultural relevance sure yeah. but it's yeah. not i i don't know how anyone can say like this is a great horror movie i mean that that's my personal opinion like i, I just i feel like it's just such a squandered opportunity it's a difficult conversation because it goes on to spawn a franchise that becomes iconic but it is interesting a lot of what you're saying because a lot of these choices were made before they knew they were going to have any maneuverability or power to make this to make sequels and to make this into a franchise and to make this into an MTV crossover type you know it did what other horror movies didn't do that it really crossed over into pop culture unlike what you know Friday the 13th is fabled and celebrated especially by horror people and filmic type advocates and and connoisseurs but and the same thing with with uh, Texas Chainsaw and the same thing of course with the Halloween films, but what the Nightmare did was cross over into MTV. It took, and I think it probably attempted to do something different, which I 
give it a lot of credit for it. It made an antagonist a killer in the film, and it flew in the face of what came before. You know, like, look at Jason Voorhees. Look at Michael Myers. They're kind of like these brooding, mute, shadowy, don't really know exactly what their motivations are. They're just kind of these voiceless, perpetual, hulking, killing, tr- more traditional killing machines, you know, chainsaws, knives, hatchets, that sort of thing. What they did with Freddy is they said, let's create a character that's a little more cartoony that seems to be really enjoying what he's doing. He's really relishing the horror that he's bringing on these people and the violence that he's, you know, the violence that he's bringing to this town, to these kids, to these families in a cartoony way, in a sick way. Now it's the same type of thing, demented, yes, psychopathic, yes, but much more animated. And I could see what they were trying to do with Freddy and also with an iconic look with the hat and the sweater, which is a little, a little strange, the physique, sort of this little guy, he looks like a little leprechaun type guy, but that iconic giant clawed weapon on his hand, you know, something different, something that kind of flew in the face of everything that came before, really unique, a great launching point to create a horror villain, you know? And I think where Freddy is the most successful, you see it a little bit in this film, and I think in subsequent versions, and hopefully we'll be able to talk about the next films and this, the next sequels on the show at some point, but is not in the physicality. Like, I know Robert England says, like, he knows what he looks like. He knows what his build is. He knows he's like a 145-pound, 5'5 dude. So what could he do? So he was kind of imparting, like, James Cagney and Klaus Kinski's Nosferatu and sort of the stance and sort of the way he moved. If, if he can't be big and hulking and threatening physically, maybe he could do that through his movements, through through inspiration from classic horror and stuff like that. But I think with Freddy, where he's the most frightening is not the physicality, not the claw, not in chasing girls down and tackling them and then them overpowering him and stuff like that (laughs) while he's making jokes. And I love the fact that he makes jokes and quips and one-liners. And again, he really seems to be enjoying being that, you know, being so malevolent. I like that because it's so different than a lot of the classic horror that came before. But I think where he's scariest is in his manipulation and his sort of magic and his supernatural seemingly abilities of controlling dreams. We'll see that later on with like he takes somebody what they love, like their love of video games and uses that horror against them. You know, he's taking somebody's arteries out and using them as a marionette with their own veins, like shit like that. That's scary because, again, he seems to have power in this dream world. Well, obviously we don't, we're just victims in that place. And I think that's where it goes on. And we see that in the end a little bit with the car, with the Freddy stripes on the car that maybe they're still trapped in a dream and now they're kind of beholden to him being trapped in this car and they're driving away. That's where Freddy's scary because his powers transcend anything that we saw in a movie villain up to this point. You know, he seems to have power over dreams that's, Dreams, as you said, it's already super frightening. It's already mysterious. We have no idea what's going on when we go to... We have no idea what we're in for when we go to sleep. Now we're dealing with Freddy on top of that. You know, so again, that concept, super, super frightening. Now, if he was a little more frightening and a little more menacing, I guess, then that would have only played up the idea. But I think they do do a better job with him and they learn how to use him better in the subsequent sequels, I think. Yeah, he's... 
Well, let me get let me get this out here from Kamza115. Wrote into us on Patreon, says, Hey, Super Moriarty bros, so glad you guys are doing Elm Street as a topic. It's one of the greats. Freddy Krueger is undoubtedly one of the most iconic and important slashers of all time. The red and green jumper, the glove of knives, and Robert England's chilling yet charismatic performance all come to mind instantly when I hear his name. What do you two find is the most memorable thing about Freddy? What do you think it is about him specifically that has cemented his place as a horror icon for almost 40 years? Love the shows. Keep up the great work. I One of the things I noticed about him in this film, and I actually think in this film generally, is that they they don't ever linger on any shot. So you can't really understand what exactly it is that. That's really true. Very makes, MTV style cutting even before yeah, that like, kicked in. They they really moved quick and you can Definitely. never really get a good look at Freddy and what makes him scary, which I actually think makes him even scarier. I think when the movie moves quickly like that, it, it becomes scarier. So I actually I like the small like, like you had brought up already, the unassuming nature of. Well, let's not say unassuming, but the the lack of disposition that he has in situations with his small size and stature requires him to have something else. So for me, I mean, I, I do think that the glove of knives is iconic. And of course that is part of the icon. Like everyone has their own iconography. I think what's all the vil- like all the memorable villains. I think what's interesting about him, in my opinion, is that it might not be his face, but rather his weapon as opposed to Jason's mask, or I think even Michael Myers mask as well. What do you find most memorable about this performance? And uh, I was surprised that, that uh, with when it comes to Freddie, that Robert England was not the original person that was going to play him, which is surprising because we would have we may, might have gotten a completely different. Well, co- we would have gotten a completely different feel, I think. Yeah, Robert England. It's interesting for him because, you know, he really first of all, I love listening to him because he really embraces. He's one of those guys that really embraces being known for a character. You know, he's not he doesn't act above it or like he's too good. He's really embraced being freddy and he's so good at it you know i think freddy delighting in the terror he brings is only brought out by robert englund delighting in the fact of playing this character and i know previously like he was around for a while like he was doing walk-ons and chips and charlie's angels i mean back in the day like soap like he he already was doing film and television like a decade prior to nightmare so he was popping around and he was I think frustrated, he says, because he was always playing like the nice guy or the second fiddle or the nebbish, you know, so to to actually play like a horror villain, to actually play this like evil, malevolent dude was actually really like he really relished the opportunity. And I think what makes Freddy the most memorable, and again, if you put him shoulder to shoulder with the other horror icons or the other guys that are much more dour or serious, the other villains that we knew in the 80s, the other slashers is that taunting and the cackling and the chasing and the sort of adding insult to injury by making fun of people and teasing them and trying to get the teenager's goat by like, you know, later on we'll see like him like making fun of their pimples and like making fun of their period and all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, the fact that he seems so connected to his prey and the fact that he's willing to have fun with them first. It's really kind of twisted and, and kind of cool. I think sometimes it works against him in the things they do in this film, like when Nancy Fine, you know, brings his hat out of the dream, she's clever enough to grab his hat and show the people in the dream clinic, like, look, like this is what's going on and sort of fighting against that skepticism and everything. But then he has his name written in his hat. What is he, a fucking second grader with his lunchbox? What, <laughs> why does Freddie have his name 
written in his hat. Like, that's not scary. That's weird, you know? So I think despite Robert England's best intentions and his efforts in this film, because he's really good in it, you know? And you're also dealing with, you already said, like, sometimes cheesier, low budget for this film. Obviously, they would have much better new line budgets going forward. But, you know, they were beholden to that million-dollar, low-quality practical effect budget where they had to come up with the best solution given their resources and but i don't think that's robert england's fault i think he does an amazing job he continues to do an amazing job he made this iconic character and also the claw you know again the claw the claw of knives it's iconic not just because it's a as a killing weapon which is actually kind of a horrifying thing like you don't want to face that thing down right but also the way he uses it nails on a chalkboard to make you know, make his prey miserable, make himself known, you know, torture them before he's even near them. Like that's all very like delicious stuff that I'm sure Robert Englund and Wes Craven came up with in order to make a really memorable type dude. And then when you look at his origins and you know, he's coming from this place of hurting kids and he's still at it in this, whatever ghostly occult supernatural form. It's super cool. It's super, super cool. You know, and and I think very successful, even in the film, even though the film sort of gyrates with absurdity and and awkward moments. And I think a lot of that's due to other stuff in the film. It's not due to, it's not due necessarily to Freddy. Well, let's talk to some of the other characters here. We brought up Nancy, the protagonist, uh, Heather Langenkamp. Now, it's interesting. I, I didn't know this when I was reading about her. I, I never made this connection, but I remember the show that she was on that um, she was the main character of that Growing Pain spinoff. Yeah, just, just the, ten the of us. Te- just the ten of us. Yeah, yeah which yeah. I had never. I, I was like, where do I know you from? And that's where I knew her from. Uh, so obviously, other than this and the third one, I guess as well. What did you think about her characterization and her performance? I think she's she's probably the most int- really the be- best part of the film in some way, and. Uh, yeah, what, what do you think? I agree. So memorable. So 80s. It's interesting that you brought up just the 10 of us, Kyle, because I was remembering her. I was looking forward to seeing her in this film and, of course, kind of journey as I journeyed back to see if I actually have ever had ever seen this film, which I hadn't. But I was remembering her specifically as sort of like the prototype for like the cute nerd girl, which is a huge thing now, right? The cute nerd girl wears her dorkiness on her sleeve, huge glasses, YouTuber, it's, it's like a thing. And I'm down, I'm down for like the cute nerd girl. I love the look. Think of like Vanessa from the first Austin Powers, that type of thing. Like the beautiful, like the, the, the classic hot for teacher, like librarian look. And she was kind of like the prototype for that as a, you know, as a young guy, she was much older than me. I was like 10 or 11 going into this film and she was a, I guess she was a teenager playing this role. I remember her as like the first girl I recognized as that. You know, but I was really not thinking of her in this film. I was thinking her from just the 10 of us. And I think making a handful of appearances on Growing Pains first before the other sitcom spun off. Right. And that she was. She was like, I think, the oldest daughter of a bunch of kids. And she was sort of the straight-laced and proper one, the one with the, the head on her shoulders, while the other ones were more ditzy and wanted to go to the mall and all that kind of stuff. And um, she channels a little bit of that. In, the, in this because she's responsible. She's got a little more intelligence or a little more wherewithal than the other kids. Like she knows how to fight Freddy. She's got courage. And yeah, she's pretty good. I think she's pretty good even as a young person in this film. It had to be hard to like navigating back and forth between the small screen and the big screen because it's a, it's it's two different sets of chops when you're doing a sitcom, when you're doing a 
you know, a, a horror film, for instance. And I think she was really good. I, I think I really enjoyed her. You know, she had that sort of tiger beat thing going on. Like she was everywhere as a kid. She was on bedroom posters. She was on the, the magazine racks at the supermarket, you know, along with the Kurt Camerons and, the you know, Ralph Macchio's and everybody's and Johnny Depp's, of course. So, yeah, I really enjoyed her. I really enjoyed her in this. I, th- I think she she sort of um, almost becomes as iconic as Freddy as the franchise goes franchise moves forward too speaking of johnny depp this is his first role as glenn and uh it's so funny because he's so interesting in this it doesn't even you can see it's him but it doesn't sound like him maybe it just goes to show his range he's only a few years away i mean obviously he'll be in platoon in a a smaller role in a couple years after this but edward scissorhands is i think six years after that and then what's eating gilbert grape and so on so forth and so he becomes he becomes bigger from here but really a very interesting first film for a young actor. And I think he does a pretty good job. I, li- I like him in this. And uh, I'm wondering what you think of his performance. It's so fun to go back and see a guy like this, an actor like this, who's a lot of people would argue is one of the best actors that ever lived. You know, he's that iconic and pre 21 Jump Street, pre before, you know, really launching. And I was looking at his performance. I was really analyzing it to see, like, do I see, like, the Marlon Brando in there yet? Do I see the James Dean? And you really don't. It's it's actually kind of cool because you see a lot of that innocence. Like, he doesn't have the, that gravity yet. You know, he hasn't, whatever method he went with or whatever he, whoever he trained under or would go on to, like, become so-and-so's protege or whatever, you don't see any of that yet. It's just a pure performance you know just it's as pedestrian as the next guy and i love seeing that because as you chart his projects you see that growth through tv and film but these are like the humble beginnings and i really don't see a lot of that sort of charisma or anything yet he's kind of like has that work a day type actor thing in this where he's just a young kid starting out and i think that's fun you know i think that's a lot of fun very sort of um prescient to in the opening credits to say introducing Johnny Depp like somebody saw they saw that this guy was going to be huge you know to say introducing Johnny Depp in the beginning of the thing is like you know that's uh that's a forecast of things to come and I don't know that I would have saw that as a casting director for sure so kudos definitely and I feel like I don't know I always love seeing the an actor in an inauspicious sort of beginning as well where you're almost surprised to see them in this place where Johnny Depp is much more known for, like you would never picture Johnny Depp doing a a horror film today. Maybe he would. I don't know. He's pretty crazy. He's yeah, he's pretty crazy. So he's more into the weird, nuts. right? He's more weird now than Yeah, he's than doing that turn where he's like very much, I think he left the country, his family's not, you know, and I'm not casting aspersions. Do what you want to do. That's totally fine, you know. But yeah, much more sort of, you know, wine, ascot, He's in that he's in that domain right now, you know, <laughs> definitely. All right. Let's talk about the most memorable scenes. Ollie Reynolds wrote it and said, gentlemen, hope you're both doing well. I have incredibly fond memories of A Nightmare on Elm Street. I remember watching it as a young, impressionable age, at a young, impressionable age. And it's absolutely one of the most movie or movies that cemented my love for the horror genre. If you could pick one standout scene or image from the movie, what would it be? For me, it's the image of Freddy casually slicing his own fingers off while laughing maniacally. It displayed Freddy's absurdist sense of humor while still retaining a deep sense of terror. Keep up the great work, guys. To me, it's the the, the really the three death scenes are 
exceptional or not three, I guess two death scenes plus the almost death scene in the bath. So the scene, I guess, kind of towards the beginning of the film when what? who is it? What's her name? Tina, Tina. Amanda Weiss's character. She is killed. She's kind of like plastered all over the wall and stuff like that. Really cool scene. And I love the scene. And I think maybe my favorite scene would be the the bathtub scene again, because it does suggest sexuality as he's like grabbing, like grabbing towards her vagina, basically. And then like kind of brings it back down and then sucks her in. And there's these really great shots of her like falling into the water. I really, right. really love that. I think they did a really nice shot with that. And then the uh, well, the hanging scene, I guess you could call that. That is a death scene. You could. I mean, that's that's neither here nor there as well. But I, I do enjoy, I guess, seeing the dream world exposed in the real world, as it were, and how that plays between these spaces, like watching Johnny Depp famously get sucked into the bed is just awesome. It's just an awesome scene and it's spitting out all the blood and it's wild. What scenes stick out to you? You know, what's funny about the hanging scene with the kid in the, in the prison cell, because as it would go on in the franchise, that becomes such an innocuous Freddy murder. You know, it's very tame. It even occurred to me when I was watching, it was like, that's not as animated or cartoony as her, or as horrific as Freddy will go on to be capable of. It's a very tame murder. So it's interesting that you brought that one up. It really, it kind of, it kind of um, stood out to me. I like, there's a couple of things I like. I can't escape that image of Freddy, you know, as sort of a satanic or demented Bugs Bunny character. Like, he almost, like, almost like a ball buster, like Bugs Bunny is like, Mwah! and then running, like give, giving right, the right. villain a kiss and then running away. Like, he has that sort of thing going on, and I enjoy that in the performance, but I think the first probably third of the film, where I think it's still pretty scary, there's some really great imagery. You mentioned the murder, the Tina kill with, a, with the spinning room. I think that's really great, and I think it's very inventive how they you know pulled that one off. But one that stays with me, and that kind of scared me while I was watching it, very creepy, was Tina showing up at school in the body bag. And then being dragged along the hallway with and leaving the trail of blood. And then Freddy disguised at the hall monitor, busting Nancy's chops or whatever. But that whole body bag with the trail of blood imagery, I think if the movie kept that tone, it would have been very scary. I think it ends on that tone in the last 30 seconds. But there's something very scary and creepy about that imagery that, that she's being pulled along, but we, there's nothing pulling her along. And, you know, and again, the imagery of a dead kid, which this movie pulls no punches with. You know, I think about, I'm watching Stranger Things with Graydon right now, and we just got past the barb. No spoiler alert, guys, if you haven't seen Stranger Things, I'll give you a second. The, bar, the barb murder, which definitely harkens back to Nightmare and the other, the other films that we witnessed in the 80s, Poltergeist, where kids are getting fucked with. You know what I mean? There's no, there's no, and there's no, I think there were a lot of rules and regulations against that in Hollywood prior to the seventies. So this was a relatively new thing where you could see that on screen. And I think that sort of idea holds up. And I think the first third to half a nightmare really holds that down where they have that imagery. And again, like, again, they do it at the end with the Johnny Depp scene with the blood flying through the bed and hidden in the ceiling. And then the forensics guys are throwing up in the bathroom. Like, that's really memorable shit. When you're a kid, it's like, and you know what? Also, I got to say, Kyle, I got to second you on the bathtub thing, too. 
And again, why that's so scary, it's like that's supposed to be another place of relaxation and privacy, like the bed, like sleeping. So now he's fucking with you in the bathtub too. Like that's, this guy knows no bounds. Like he's going to fuck with you everywhere. Like there's no, there's no escape from this dude. And I love that. I love that the scene sort of, the bathtub scene sort of intimates that. And also the fact that again, like the rapey sort of, harming young people young teenage girl thing like that's where it's pretty scary and i think in a 1984 context too where this is a relatively new thing like movies were just starting to do this like sam peckinpah and stuff like that were just starting to do this in the early 70s to mid 70s so this wasn't a this wasn't a thing that people were generally used to seeing yet so take this back 35 40 years ago it's pretty pretty frightening stuff you definitely know? definitely yeah very well put I'm wondering, um, well, I don't want to go to the ending yet, actually. I do want to talk about a couple other things I have in my notes here, and then we'll talk about the ending. Was it me, or was there a serious Kevin McAllister-type situation going on in this movie? Like, where she was, like, set... I found that whole thing where there's just... They're at the bridge eating, and she's yes. reading literally, like, a booby trap survivalist book and then that seemed like that they just needed to film that scene to justify why she's like she looks she looks like she's like in the Viet Cong or something like you know scraping shit like she has like shotgun shells that she got somewhere putting it in I'm like what the fuck is going on here so that way I found that really weird yeah she becomes like travis bickle she's like reading a pamphlet (laughs) on improvised explosives and she's making claymores in the bit like what like what is happening the the brisk pace is one thing but then just flying in the face of all logic this movie definitely does that and i don't know i know craven has a very craven paradoxical thing going on where it's like you know, I bought a lot of this parody. A lot of it is, you know, um, satire and all that kind of stuff. But when you look at it as a cohesive film, it's like, wait, all of a sudden, like Nancy's like some like PTSD Vietnam vet. Yeah, like, she's like Firefly. Explosive. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> very strange. Very strange choice. Uh, I wanted to also give a quick shout out to uh, a visual that I really liked, which I feel like might have been copied in Castlevania 3. In Castlevania 3, there's an enemy that's on fire and it moves really slowly, like lumbers forward. It's like a body on fire and it leaves little footprints behind it. And I like that. I when I when That scene of Freddy like being on fire and leaving the footprints, I'm like, I wonder if they they took it from that because it, I, I do like that um, scene as well. And I also just wanted to co- point out some of the goofiness you brought up. The, like when she pulls out that coffee, that coffee machine from under a bed, I like, actually started laughing. I was like, this is hysterical True but, story, though. It, but yeah, it seems like that was the inspiration for it. Like you said earlier. So I'm wondering what you think of this. I just put this in my notes just to ask, do you think that there's an element of like sci-fi in this movie? This is like an almost horror sci-fi movie. Almost. It's actually got a lot more in line with, I think, Alien. Yeah. Than it does or even the thing than I think it does, um, you know, Friday the 13th or The Shining. Absolutely. What do you think of that? What do you think of that? I always think of Wes Craven and in particular, John Carpenter in the same breath. I think they have a very same a very similar calling card as far as the tone, as far as what they're saying, as far as the imagery and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it definitely does cross over into sci-fi. I love, because Freddy, again, like you're because you're dealing with dreams in a Nolan-esque Inception type way. Again, you're dealing with dreams. You're dealing with somebody who has some sort of supernatural 
power over dreams. So what's the difference between this and let's say something like scanners, right? Where it's like you're dealing with people with unnatural powers. And Freddy has that. So he has, there's a little more sci-fi to Freddy than the average bear, than the average slasher. And the imagery too, like you're saying, the fire print, the fire footprints on the carpet and the bisquick on the steps. That's something that I think was another missed opportunity for this. If you're trying to tell a story about people trapped against this killer who's pursuing them in their dreams, why not be beholden to those typical experiences that we have as everyday people in dreams where we can't run fast enough or, you know, the ground feels like quicksand. A very similar thing to like the dream you have where you're embarrassed in your underwear. It's the same type of thing. Like call in those typical things that would make the experience really horrific. Like you're trying to get away, but the knife just disintegrates in your hand. Or you think you have a weapon, but then the knife disintegrates in your hand. Or you think someone's there to help you and they then they transform into a monster. That wasn't really played up enough. I think it, it, it sort of tread in the territory where it got maybe a little too confusing on and a little too twisted up. And maybe that just speaks to my own stupidity. I don't know. But for me, like I wasn't really sure all the time when we were in a dream and when we weren't. And right. it made it hard to kind of call the shots or try to put yourself in as an audience surrogate of like, what, what would I do here? But I think that would have made it scarier if we were kind of beholden to those dream rules, you know, where it's like, you see a little bit of that, but it would have been cool to take it further, you know? Definitely, definitely. Also, I, I just have to point out, and this was really noticeable as well, just how a movie like this really couldn't take place in the same way in the modern era. When you think about how they stymie even just their basic ability to communicate, like when Nancy is trying to talk to someone or trying to get, you know, communicate or dad or trying to talk to Glenn or trying to talk to her mom or trying to leave the house, you realize that they do some really kind of campy and fun things, I guess, to kind of limit her mobility, which is her mom's an alcoholic. They establish that right away. So she's going to like pass out. She gets all of these bars somehow put on the on the house so she can't leave. Then she passes out. The key is nowhere to be found. So then Nancy's trapped in this thing. She pulls the phone out of the wall so she has no other way to communicate with anyone. It's just it's funny because there are it's it's unbelievable that this would even be able to happen today. It would be unbelievable that it would be ha- able to happen at all. But I, I it makes me sad that a lot of horror needs to set itself in rural areas or in the past or other things like that, because it's just so easy to ruin the horror with the trappings of like, oh, I'll just go on the Internet. Yeah. Like a good example is like she has no idea who Fred Krueger is. She asks like several people. No one will tell her. She could just go on the Internet and look up Fred Krueger, but no, she can't. Like she has no way of figuring that out. And so it's it's there's a dearth of information that makes this movie function and a dearth, of course, of communicative abilities that makes the movie function where I feel like a lot of horror just doesn't work anymore because you have to like the witch, which we really love. You have to go into the deep past or with uh, Midsummer, which is a movie I really love, like you have to go into this middle of nowhere in a foreign country and until dawn a really wonderful horror video game where they're like in northern canada and the phones don't work and stuff there's did you notice that as well like that they didn't really have to do much to stop her that it was pretty how i know they remade it about 10 years ago and i haven't seen it but i'd be interested to know how they get around all that 
Yeah. When, once it becomes a little more logical, and again, that that could be where, again, the missed opportunity of, like, you pull in the parents or the older generation in this town with the wink and the nod working together to try to make this thing or make this idea go away or make sure it's not revealed to their kids what happened. You know, that again, that inescapable dark cloud, but yet trying to get out from under it, but that it's inevitable. It's going to pursue you. And, you know, then it could have been everybody working together. Like Johnny Depp's parents were just annoyed. You know what I mean? Like they, they are parents in the town of the same age too, but there was no intimation that they had anything to do with it. But if Nancy's mom was telling the truth, then many of them would have been involved in that whole thing. It was just, it wasn't just her and just low rent, uh, Michael Ironside, the guy that plays, the guy that plays her dad, which I thought was Michael Ironside until the end of the film. I was like, that's yeah. not Michael Ironside. Like he has an evil twin somewhere. This guy, like also, I think the, the, the mom puts on a kind of Shelly Duvall type. Oh, uh, performance here as well. Uh, very good point. She yeah. acts like she's on ether. I mean, let's yeah. just call it what it is. Like, I yeah. know she's supposed to be in the bottle, but, that's not an alcoholic. That's somebody who's like, yeah, she was me- acting like she was like, I don't even know. Like it was too much whimsy. It was like, you're a little too asleep at the wheel. Like let's have a, let's have a proper performance here. It, it only worked at the end when you were questioning whether it was a dream or not with the fog and the sunshine and her being on the porch all garbed in white or whatever. Right. It's the only time her acting worked in the entire film because it was just like, you know, she was just acting like she was in this dream state ironically which is which is actually really which is really funny you know what i love about what you said before with keeping your dream journal here's the idea for the film i love the idea of now you doing this because now you get to track like any sort of patterns or rhythms with your dreams you could even draw up any connections to what's on your mind the night before what's going on in real life you could really see you know, you could, I think that you, you'll be able to really see, maybe get to the bottom of some of the things and what's in your subconscious and what's sort of playing out on the peripheries, on the outer edges of your mind when you go to sleep at night or what's going on with your life that week or whatever. But this movie could have used a little more of that, I think, in, you know, making the dream state a fearful place. You know what I mean? Like, and not just because Freddie's in there, you know, making sort of dealing with and navigating the mysteries that we already deal with on a day to day on top of everything else. Now you're dealing with with Freddie, I think. And I do think and I don't want to misremember, but I do think they go on to do that with two, three, four and so on, where they play that up a little more. And it's it's a little more personal. It's drawn up with the kids that Freddie's after now as far as like their own, each of their own individual lives, what they're into, their hobbies, their hangups, their fears and all that kind of stuff. That's what this first movie could have used. And again, a little more of that tone, a little more of that dragging along the high school corridor and the body bag tone, you know, just kind of like creepy. Sure. Instead of just spelling everything out and making it a little too cartoony. And then the whole thing at the end, dude, with like, I understand the dad's like a police lieutenant and the parents are divorced. It took me a little while to even realize the parents were divorced. I thought they were just kind of like adversarial. Then I realized, okay, they're actually divorced. The dad's not just 
not home at work. He's like, doesn't live there. Okay, I get it. But it gets really weird with the whole thing with Johnny Depp's, you know, you know Johnny, De- there's a lot of this in the movie. It's not just here. But tell me if you agree with me. Johnny Depp is murdered viciously. Mm. Gallons of blood seeping through the, the ceiling into the first floor. Cops everywhere. Nancy knows what's going on. She's trapped in her house. She just goes to sleep. Her and her mom, and her mom goes to sleep. Like an hour later, as the cops are leaving, the mom's just like, all right, I'm going to bed. Like, but like, it's just like a lot of like, or even when Tina dies, that's Nancy's best friend. And it was just like, all right, like you're drinking, like you're going to go to school. Like, all right. Like, I guess so. Like, you know, don't drink too much coffee. Like what? Like her best friend was just murdered horrifically. And the boyfriend's like on the lamb because they think he did it with his switchblade. Like it was like, there was no, there's, I could suspend my disbelief with the best of them. This movie really requires you to suspend a lot of disbelief just to have fun with it. You know what I mean? Like there's, it's a bridge too far for suspending disbelief, this movie, you know, it's still fun, still fun, but that goes into the last question I wanted to ask from David Graham, who says, um, how do you interpret the end of the film? What is it reality or Mm. was it a dream? Mm. Now, I think that this is somewhat answered because I think the, this protagonist comes back in the third one, right? So, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not familiar enough moving forward, but I always assumed that it was just a dream and that everything kind of went the way it was. But I don't really know. I'm not even really sure what the purpose of the end is. I find the, the end kind of strange. What, what, what is your interpretation of it? I mean, if we're beholden to Freddy rules, they must still be in a dream. One, because I think Freddy was defeated a little too easily. You know, they're kind of they're kind of wrestling on the uh Again, like Freddie wrestling with the teenage girls, it's not a good look. Like, it's like maybe the, you know, pedestrian, normal teenage girl is going to get the upper hand. She's not even like a softball player or a wrestler, like tough teenage girl. She's like an average teenage girl. Like, and maybe Freddie's going to win and maybe, and he's got the claw. Like, he's got, he should, he should have the upper hand on most teenage girls, especially with the weapon and everything like that. Certainly. But I think he's defeated a little too easily. And I think... That he only, if Freddy only has powers in the dreams, which is what we know so far, at least before the sequels, then they still have to be in a dream. Not only because it appears to be a dream with the fog and the mom being alive and everything, but because they're whisked away, whisked away in that Freddy car, it must be, you know, and then the mom's dragged through the window, but the mom's already dead. There's a great still of that scene of the mom sort of like CPR dummy getting dragged through the window where you could see yeah. the fabric arm like all wrinkled and stuff. It's great. It's great <laughs> stuff. But I like the ending because the ending makes it scary again because by the ending, you're so annoyed. I think Johnny's, Johnny Depp's parents were the ones that put me over the edge. I was like, these people are just too annoying. I can't, I can't buy anything that's happening, especially his dad. I was just like, I can't with that. So by the end, they kind of take it back into creepy and scary territory. So it's a proper... Sets it up for a proper sequel, too, which I like. And I like that the audacity of like having this very modestly budgeted film, a lot of question marks, and going in and saying, This is going to be, you know, we're going to continue this, you know, like this is going to be continued. I like the, I like the bravado of that, you know, because there's no way, there's no way in hell they knew they were going to be able to do that at this point, you know. So it's kind of, it is cool. Definitely. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about, Dave, with Nightmare on Elm Street before we wrap it up? You know what? There was one thing that I noticed that I really enjoy about this film, and that's the movie poster. Did you see the image? It's an illustrated, 
I guess it's supposed to be an illustrated young teenage girl. I guess it's supposed to be the Nancy character, and she's under the sheets, and Freddy's, you know, claw knife claws hovering above her. But it's a beautiful yeah. illustration, and it just harkens back to that mid '80s era movie poster illustration time where it was like before they did too much with high gloss photo before they did too much with Photoshop. It's just a beautiful painting. And I, so I want to give a nod to uh, the illustrator, Matthew Joseph peak. His name was, and apparently he did all of the, I believe he did all the nightmare posters through five, I believe. So it's cool that they kept the same illustrator throughout. And again, just kind of like we know Drew Struzan with like the Indiana Jones imagery and the star Wars movie posters and everything, but to, to have another guy, and there were a lot, of, of professional commercial illustrators back then. But I love that period because it was part of the excitement of being a kid and maybe seeing this movie poster. Maybe we were seeing Ghostbusters or Karate Kid and we would see the movie poster for this and it, how enticing that was, you know, just from a single image and how scary it could have been and how forbidden it seemed. And I think, you know, that promotional art was a big part of that for us growing up. And, um, you know, it was fun. It was fun to have this conversation and it was really fun to review something that I actually hadn't seen. Which yeah, you never really know. Fun. When we pull these things out, you like you never really. It's just hard to remember. You don't always know. Yeah, you don't. You don't. So yeah, I'm glad you dug that too. The only other thing I thought you would enjoy just with the uh, the a lot of the MTV references you were making was pretty clear Nike sponsorship in this movie. Oh, good and point. A lot of really cool early Nike stuff. I think um, at some point Tina's wearing like this awesome Nike like pink multicolored like sweatshirt or something like that's a pretty some pretty cool gear in here for old nike heads but yeah uh i'm glad we did it uh we'll do more of them in the future i'm sure moving forward but uh i rented it on amazon prime it's Me on too. peacock as well i think but i think i let my peacock oh is it on peacock oh damn it's it, watch it for yeah free. yeah I, I saw it on peacock well I, there's like the universal search on playstation so it shows you where everything is oh i gotta start using that but for me on Peacock, it's very useful. But on Peacock, it said like free with commercials or something. I'm like, oh, so I must have let my subscription oh, okay. lapse. Okay. And I fuck, I'm not doing commercials. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dave. Well, uh, let's leave it over to you for a dad joke. You know, I got to say, too, you made the Kevin McAllister point before. But the the part with the, the booby trap, the sledgehammer booby <laughs> trap was just like took me right back to Home Alone. It's dude. I, I It was so it's so funny. Like I was. I'm like, is this supposed to be funny? I think this is funny, but I don't know. Uh, I, th I think so. I, it must cross over in a satire after a fashion, right? It's got to. All right, Kyle. So dad joke today. Kyle, I decided to sell my vacuum cleaner. Yeah, it was just gathering dust. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. That's a good one. Nice basic one. Not bad. Not bad. Yeah, no, classic. Not classic. Not at all. Well, Dave, thanks for your time today. Glad Thank we you. got I to. fun. We got to do this. Likewise, thank you all out there for your love, kindness, and support of our show, Knockback, and all things on Last Stand Media. Remember, support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Media. Buy your merch, laststandmedia.shop. And you want to call your mother. She misses you. Oh, uh, she does? Our I'm mother saying, misses uh, that? No, I'm just saying generally out Their there. You know, of course, mom misses you. But yeah, call your mother. And I'll she see you in you. Pennsylvania, Hawaii yes. people, and Alaska people. Yes, everyone from all the 50 states. We'll see you soon. Uh, and that's basically it. So we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. 
The show is conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. Andrew Morgan, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLDFMA, Jorge Palomino, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Tom Quinn, Jordan Mittman, Julian Zhu, Tristan Palacios, Graham Plays, Christian Rodriguez, Jad Rita, Kurt M. Gillenberg, Patrick Skipper, Anthony Fuentes, Sweaty Mitt, John Russell, Chris Kelly, Dustin Graff, Israel Pena, Peyton Stone, Roberto, Josh Hallen Rui, Taylor Watkins, Troilus True, Dan Root, Randall Holsey, Robbie Nauman, Nuke Dukum, William Holbert, Landon Pipkin, Dr. Stump, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Callan Lennon, Daniel Johnson, H-Trons, an unofficial controller podcast, Ethan Davies, Jay Getter, Manuel Ochoa, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Galja, of Fortuna, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Poot, Gavin Newland, Saul Balcazar, Zach Parsley, Raul Melendez, Keegs, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Kinnums, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Ben B, TB Lightning, Anti Kinnanen, Taylor Barkley, Will Hernandez, Timothy Baylor, Chris Galvin, Mason Cadillac, Ali Fritz, Evan Dalton, Zach Allen, George Anthony Nunez, Kyle Hagel, Christopher, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naiman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie 108, D.B. Cooper, Cody Bradbury, Tom Cargill, Richter 86, Steve Hodge, Holfeldian, Ian Bravo, Noah J. Stevens, Barrett Boswell, Andrew Parker, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Kevin Komaki, Mark Liberto, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Blake Israel, Jonathan Coates, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Brian Chan, Jay, Organic Produce, Travis Archuleta, Shane St. Pierre, Carlos Algorit, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Josh Yeager, Dan Parsons, Martin Beck, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Brody Rainey, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Eric Finkenbeiner, Lewin Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, Jason Lusky, Malachi Wall, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Yusuf, Anton K., Brian W. Rath, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bello, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zaniga, Sean Battershaw, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixie, James Kinslow III, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kiniston, William O'Carroll, Jesper Jansen, Phil Crow, Throw Seven, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, David Mann, Petro Rose, Lockmore, Gio Corsi, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, David Iacolucci, Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Shane Rayum, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Marius Garson Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Perdue, Patrick Harper, Madmock Media, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming.